Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are in uh, continuing through the New Testament tonight. We, today, maybe it's tonight, it might be this morning, but wherever you're at in your chronology, we are in 1 Corinthians. So, Rob, what do we want to do today as we set the stage a little bit last week? Yeah, so we're going to we're gonna build on what we did last week. We're going to look at the first couple chapters in some more depth and detail and see what Paul's getting at. But let me kind of begin with giving a little bit of context to help us understand what's going to happen. And I, this is going to sound strange, like what this has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians. But as we go through the first several chapters, I think it'll, it'll play out. Bear in mind that the biblical story starts in the Garden of Eden. It starts in this garden when the garden is God's presence, where God dwells. He calls Adam and Eve into that garden and establishes them as kings and queens and as priests in his garden. And they're supposed to be caretakers of that garden. Now, inside that garden was, of course, the tree of life. That's where God dwelt in the middle of the garden. And that, of course, is the tree that gives that gives life. But next to it or somewhere in the garden there was also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, and I did a podcast on this that I did with a Zoom Bible study, and it's recorded on our, on our podcast episodes. Uh, from a few months back. So you can just look at our Genesis studies and kind of get some more details of this. But what's happening there is we often think, oh, they were not allowed to eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of wisdom of good and bad. I'm sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad or good and evil. They were not allowed to eat from that tree. But the reality is in order for Adam and Eve to rule and to rule well, they needed to be able to discern good and bad. I mean, how, how can you rule if you don't know how to discern good and bad? So Adam and Eve, eventually they needed to eat from it. The problem was God said, well, not now. And not yet. And then Satan comes along and says, oh, you know what? You can do it. And they go, you know what? It's good for the eyes. It's good for food. Let's do it. And humanity decides to rule on their own. We will make decisions of right and wrong for ourselves. We will rule as kings and queens ourselves. We know right and wrong and not God. And I think what you see in the world around us today is not God bringing judgment and wrath upon the world. It's the world reaping the consequences of what happens when humanity rules on its own terms. Hmm. We rule on our own terms for our own benefit, and that might mean at the expense of the poor or the expense of somebody else, the marginalized. Uh, we rule by power, by force, by military might, by dominance. Um, the rich and the powerful often dictate what happens. And even if we're a good country and we love our people, we still are going to take advantage of somebody else in order to preserve our own status or whatever else it might be. So it's this issue of wisdom and discernment of knowledge of good and evil. It's this, it's this um, theology of the temple, the theology of the tabernacle, the theology of rulership. That's what's going on there. And, and there's this larger question of wisdom that we're going to get into now um, as we proceed. All right. So let's go to chapter one, verse 18. And uh, we've talked a little bit about foolishness and that concept, but Paul is bringing up this idea of how this is what the cross does. Yeah. Yeah, so First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And we've, de- we've kind of set the context for this a little bit, but we'll dive a little bit deeper into it um, today. And that is that you have to understand the fact that you have two rival worldviews going on. That's kind of what Paul's getting at. Look, the way the world works is this, and that's through power or eloquent speakers who are rhetoricians and they have fancy speeches and they make people laugh. Um, and Paul says, like, I'm not doing that because the gospel itself is about a crucified Messiah. And so the word of the cross, it's foolishness because it's about a crucified Messiah. 
uh, who was Jewish and died at the hands of Rome. And so uh, it's problematic for the Jews. It's a stumbling block, he says in verse 23. And it's a stumbling block because the, for the Jews, and we may have alluded to this before, but we'll kind of uh, iterate or reiterate it tonight. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, well, let's, why don't we read it? I think it's, it's significant enough that we probably should take a look at this text. It'll be relevant for our study of the book of Galatians as well. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Do you want to read it? or? So Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right, so this is actually an important verse to help us with the Gospels and Jesus, and let's kind of tie it into that for just a second. When the Roman world brought crucifixion into Judea, Palestine, the Jews had a problem on their hands, and that is they had to decide did this curse fall under death by crucifixion, And because it says if you hung on a tree. And they concluded, yes, it does. If you die by crucifixion, it's, you are under the curse of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. And if you're hung on a tree, you are cursed. And then it goes on to say, if his curse hangs all night on a tree, or if he's, his corpse hangs all night on a tree, the land is cursed. Hmm. And that's why the Jews went to Rome and said, hey, listen, you can crucify if you want, but you cannot leave them up overnight. Remember, Romans would crucify victims for like two or three days until they finally died and leave them hanging on the trees as a, like a warning to everybody else, let's this happen to you. But the Jews went to Rome and said, you can't do that because it's one thing that he's cursed. But if he stays up overnight, you know, past 6 p.m., then we're all cursed. And there's no way you're going to let us that we're going to stand for that. So mm -hmm. Rome went and said, OK, here's the deal. We'll go ahead and crucify victims and we'll break their legs to hasten their death so we can get them off the cross before 6 p.m. And that's why they're, you know, they're going. That's why we see that with the two thieves uh, on the other side of Jesus. That's what happens. Exactly. And that's why they pierced Jesus aside. It's like, mm -hmm. is he actually dead or not? Right. Just to, mm -hmm. to see. So that's what's going on with the gospel story and then why the Jews said, no way you can let them hang on overnight because we're all under this curse. Now, the question then becomes this for the Christians and the Jews, and that is, as soon as the Christians come out and say, Jesus is the Messiah, God rose him from the dead, the Jews simply quote this verse. Mm -hmm. And they say, uh, he died under a curse. And a cursed Messiah, remember, Messiah means the anointed one, the one who's the king, the one who's been established by God or chosen by God to rule. A, a cursed Messiah is an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. And so the Christians are like, okay, what do we do with this? Well, when we get to Galatians, we'll point this out. The Christians simply said, you're right. He is under the curse. Jesus died under the curse in order to redeem us from the curse. He suffered the curse of the law, even though he did no sin, because he was crucified on a tree. And thereby, through his death and resurrection, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. And it was the Christians did not deny in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians that Jesus died on a tree. In fact, they use the word tree specifically mm -hmm. because it makes the connection with this particular passage. The point though then is, is that for the Jews, this is a stumbling block because a cursed Messiah doesn't make any sense. Now for the Greeks and verses eight, go back to, to 1 Corinthians chapter one now, and 1, 18, 21, and again in 23, he refers to the gospel being the gospel of, of foolishness. It, this is foolishness to the Greeks. And of course it's foolishness because well, you're still talking about a man who died by crucifixion. He was executed by Rome. And so you want us to follow a, a crucified criminal who was Jewish. And, you know, I mean, there's just nothing about this that makes any sense. 
you know, the, the world works through power. The world works through um, stepping on the little guy and all that good stuff. And you Christians are like, no, the world works through love. It works through sacrifice, sacrificial love for the sake of the other. And Jesus died and he rose again. And you're like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to go for this. And so this is that conflict in, the, in Paul's teaching that the, church, that the Corinthians were struggling with. The gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Christians are preaching that their, their, their Lord, their Messiah is... I mean, they're just, this is a bad way to brand your religion. This is like, this is not good marketing uh, in the same way that the gospels have women as the two first eyewitnesses yeah. to Jesus's resurrection. Like this is just not one of those ways you start a religion because you're, you're describing your founder and your leader as being someone who just embraced the most despicable form of death you could think of. Yes. In fact, so think of it this way, you know, we, Christians walk around with crosses on their necks and it's the equivalent of walking around with an electric, an electric chair in their, mm -hmm, on your neck mm -hmm. or a hypodermic needle, you know, mm -hmm. at the top of your church, you have an electric chair. I mean, just think about how stupid that would be or how, how silly or foolishness or even cruel or crude mm -hmm. uh, that would be. That's what the cross is. Yeah. Um, to take up your cross. I mean, the cross was even considered profane when Jesus says to take up your cross and follow me it's it's essentially swearing it's it's profanity it's like this is no this is despicable what are you talking about so we we really have to put the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel in that context of how vulgar it is and uh the way it would have been viewed i'm, I'm thinking of the graffiti um i think it's in um oh, uh -huh. pompeii where uh, -huh. uh what's i can't remember the guy's name but uh, there's a graffiti of a donkey uh hanging on a cross and the graffiti says, so I can't remember the guy's name. So-and-so worships his God. Mm -hmm. And they're making fun of the idea of the Christians and the cross and all, and all that stuff there. That's, that's, what, that's what Christianity is. It's something to ridicule. It's not something to be um, pro proclaiming about. So it's, this is the context then when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul says in verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now look what he says in verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where's the wise man, or where's the wise person? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the reason why is this, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Indeed, Jews ask for science and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I, I think this speaks so much to, uh, we're going to get into this obviously when we get to the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the New, in the New Testament. The way the world does this, we saw this in the book of Romans, right? That the world knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. And so mm -hmm. therefore God gave them over to the depravity of their own mind, depravity of their own world. And that the ills of the world and the, the much of the famines and much of the catastrophes and much of the problems that we see in the world is what happens when humanity is in power, when we rule. When we rule, we don't put up things in place to take care of mudslides and and um, and water from from torrential downpours and as a result the poor get their houses swept away you know when we rule we 
well, depending on your view of, you know, of uh, global warming, you know, we burn fossil fuels and do all these things to maintain our power. And we don't care because we want power and wealth and the things that come from that. And as a result of it, we now get super storms and things of that nature. And again, you may or may not agree with that, or some of the listeners may or may not agree with that. But I think that's kind of the same idea, whether it's correct or not, is, is kind of the question. That's what happens. And the wisdom of the world, then it didn't lead to God, right? It leads to foolishness and, and idolatry and whatever else it might be. So God says, you know, here's the, here's the deal. I'm going to use the message of the cross. Now go back to what you said earlier, that Christianity is like, this is just not something you want to promote. I mean, this is ridiculous that you're promoting this with women at the tomb or that you're promoting a Jewish man who died by crucifixion at the hands of Rome and he's your king. And yet the miracle is that it worked, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we would look at this and go, why would anybody believe this? You would and, flunk business class if this was your marketing strategy. Oh, right. Yeah. How to start a religion 101. Yeah. yeah. If, uh, by the way, um, if your right eye caused you to stumble, pluck it out, right? Yeah. And by the way, the, the poor will enter the kingdom and woe to you who are rich. I mean, you don't start religions this way, right? And it's like, woe to you who are poor and blessed are you who are rich. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you don't do these things. And yet, how did the church make it? How did it? How did it get any followers? How did it get any survival? How did it last even 25 years, let alone, you know, 2000 years? It's, it's, a, it's an incredible story that says only one thing, that the spirit of God must truly be transforming people's hearts and minds as they listen to this gospel. Because come follow me. There's not a whole lot in it for you. Someday there might be, but right now you get peace and you get comfort, you get security and get truth, but you are also going to get Rome and mm -hmm. the problems that Rome has and socially being ostracized. And, you know, and for you Jews, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogues and that's not going to go over well. And you can't fellowship with, you know, remember the synagogue is a place of community. It's a, it's a communal gathering place. Yeah. You can't have any of that. And you're disowned by family and friends and good luck getting a job because you won't go to the pagan feasts in honor of the, of the deity of your particular uh, trade. And therefore you're, you know, you're kicked out from that. And you, why are people following this? Why, why are they listening? This is the conflict that Paul's trying to bring up to the Corinthians. Like, oh, we want you to be a, a better orator, Paul. I was like, do you understand the message I'm preaching? Mm -hmm. And yet you want me to, to dress it up. So it doesn't mm -hmm. make much sense. All right. So we move into chapter two now. And uh, it, when you look at sections, you know, verses, starting in verse six, all the way into the first part of chapter three, ending at verse four, Paul contends that his message was wisdom, though. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, actually, let's go back for just a second and talk and look at the first five verses also, because we really didn't we kind of glossed over them uh, briefly. One of the things that Paul says in chapter five, chapter two, verse one now, he says, look, I didn't come to you with superior of a speech or wisdom proclaiming you the testimony of God. And he says, and the reason why, verse two, is because I wanted to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, remember, they want Paul to be this great order that they can say, hey, we follow Paul and we're really proud of that. And Paul's answer is, look, I didn't want to do that because look what he says in verse four. My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And look at verse five, so that your mm -hmm. faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Mm -hmm. If I trick this up, if I made it look good, if I made myself look good, and you, you would be following me just because you want to follow me and you get honor and pride in following me. Instead, you were converted or you were transformed by the power of the spirit. 
And that's what your face rests on, not on the eloquence of your teacher, of, of your leader. Paul goes on to say, well, guess what, by the way, we do speak with wisdom. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is stupid or, or that, that we're wrong. I'm saying it's not wisdom according to the world standards. Mm-hmm. By the world standards, this is foolishness. This is for all the reasons that we just discussed. But it truly is wisdom. In verse 7, he says, of chapter 2, he says, we speak God's wisdom, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages. Um, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood, look at verse eight, because if they understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have understood, hey, this is the way it really works. And I really think that we've lost sight of this in the church. I, I think we you know, might want to discuss this more as we proceed as well. I think we've lost sight of this because we've lost sight of the fact that, look, the wisdom of God is that the way to rule. Um, and remember, this goes back to the gardens we began our, our study tonight with in that um, the, God created us to rule, and the way he wants us to rule is through wisdom. Mm-hmm. But that wisdom, and the way, and remember that wisdom makes known God, is that God is a God of love, and love sacrifices itself for the sake of the other. Love denies self for the sake of the other, and that's where true wisdom is, and that's where true um, justice and peace and prosperity actually come from. The next thing to notice then is, if you look at this section, the word wisdom occurs 15 times in chapter one, verses 17 to chapter two, verse 13. It only occurs 28 times in all of Paul's writings. Mm. So 15 of them are here. And then it occurs kind of in chapter three, verse 19 also, which kind of provides like a summary of of it all. Chapter three, verse 19 says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Mm. So this theme of wisdom, and again, as I mentioned already before, and just kind of reiterate again, just make sure I'm clear here. And that is that the world has wisdom of, of its standards, and this is the way we work. And the kingdom of that's the kingdom of the world, and the kingdom of God comes along and says, no, wisdom is manifested power through love, sacrifice, and surrender for the sake of the others. Now, again, we stop and go, okay, yeah, but that that's not going to work. I mean, think about it this way. If a political ruler, a, a king, a monarch, a president, or a parliament, whatever it might be, if they said, you know what, we're going to adopt the Christian view of this and live by the Christian standard, it's immediately going to be overtaken by some other nation next to it. Mm-hmm. They're just going to take advantage of it. You know what, Vladimir Putin, you know what, you know, whoever leader might be, we love you so much, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Okay, cool. I'm, yeah, I'll you, take it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be taken. In, other words, mm-hmm. in a corporate sense, in a political sense, in a societal sense, in a nationalistic sense, this won't work. Mm-hmm. And yet it's exactly the way God's kingdom is supposed to work. And exactly the way that the people of God are supposed to live in the midst of the kingdoms of the world, we live like this. And so I think there's this great um, contrast. I think I put down on my notes here, Vinny, I said Paul's argumentation is not philosophical. Mm-hmm. It's eschatological. Yeah. And what eschatological means is that this is the way the end comes about. This is the way the kingdom of God manifests itself is through the wisdom of God, which is sacrificial love for the, for the sake of the other. So then Paul concludes by saying, you know, we don't come with the wisdom among the mature. That's why the rules of this age crucify the Lord of glory. So again, the point then is it's not a matter of like false wisdom versus true wisdom. It's the fact that it's that your wisdom is not really wisdom. It leads to immorality and idolatry, as, as Paul says in the book of Romans. Yeah. And just to make a, a comment without going on a complete tangent, but just yeah. to, to maybe shed a little more, uh, I don't know, 
just a little more light on how we think about worldly wisdom versus, you know, God of wisdom and how the, the two just are, they're supposed to be antithetical. They're supposed to be different radically from one another. And when well-meaning people are searching the Bible for answers in terms of creating a, a, a Christian worldview, which we, sh- we should, but what happens is when we overdo it and I'm not making a value judgment on economic systems in general, that's out of my league. I'm not trained in that. But when we assume that a capitalistic system is the Christian biblical worldview right. or system or a socialistic or Marxist system is the way it's supposed to be. This is where you need to step back and say, no, the thing is, these are man-made things right. and everyone's always going to take advantage of it. Yeah. yeah all of them. And yeah, any it, one of them. All right, it, let, it, let me. Okay. Well, and I was going to say in a capitalistic system, you're always going to try to take advantage of the person whose shoulders you could stand on to get more for you because you're assuming that everyone is altruistic and that's yeah. just not the way it works. And, and vice versa. If you're in a socialistic system, people are, who's going to, why would I want to pull my weight when I could just skate by doing nothing? I, I hear this on both sides from people and it's like, no, you're, you're importing a Jesus ethic onto the world. That it's just, it, when you don't have the spirit of God empowering you and the, the law written on your heart, why are you going to want to do anything altruistically for someone else? Right. Truly. Yeah. And, so and we're not saying that one system of one political system or governmental system or economic system is not better than another. That's no, fine. No, no, no. At all. Yeah. The point of it is that they're all ultimately run, run by the world. Yes. And they're all going to have a fatal flaw and a weakness. So as soon as we trump and say, this is the right way to do it, mm-hmm. which ironically, most of you know, as soon as we say, well, it's a democratic way or it's, or it's a capitalistic way. Yeah. And then you go to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and they're like, what are you talking about? No, capitalism, at least all, and they see yeah. all the problems and weaknesses mm-hmm. of capitalism that we don't see. Yes. And then we see all the problems and weaknesses of communism that they, that they, yeah, might have. yeah, yeah. The other thing is, by the way, we're not saying that godly wisdom always makes worldly wisdom foolishness. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that you can't go to your child and say, well, you know, think about what the best school for you to go to for, for college might be, or, or what job is the best job for you to take. We're not saying that you can't use wisdom no. or talk to non-Christians and find out some get, get good advice. Of course you can. They, they, they have really good advice and, mm-hmm. and great things to think about and they're, and they're practical and things of that nature. So we're not denying that at all. We're simply saying the way the systems are run are fundamentally and diametrically opposed to one another. And that is the Christian system ultimately says that we love and sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the other. And we know that's going to make us subject to abuse and, th- and we mm-hmm. have to figure out how to, how to wrestle with that also. So I think there's one more thing too. Let me push back a little bit on the idea of a Christian worldview. I would affirm the idea, but I would also say, well, how do you define that? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Right. What do you mean by that? Because a Christian worldview for a Baptist might mm-hmm. mean a different thing from a Christian worldview from a Catholic Yeah. Right? and from an Orthodox and a Christian worldview today in the 20th century or 21st century might be something different than it was for a Christian worldview in the second century. Yeah. And I think we need to realize our own spot and our own place in this world and go, yeah, okay, great. I think the problem when we do a Christian worldview is to say, hey, this is what it is. And we don't recognize well enough sometimes the fact that, well, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are actually outside the boundaries that I just drew. I think we need to be, be aware of that. So, yep. yeah. Uh, again, so I, I guess just to kind of finish that off, I'd simply say the point of that though is we're, we're contrasting that the the way the world does power and rule, and that might be the best way to say it. The best way, how, how do we rule? What's the most, the proper way to rule? Well, 
a CEO of a major corporation is going to have an answer to that. A political ruler is going to have an answer to that. And then Jesus is going to have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. And Jesus's answer is not going to square with the, with the CEO of most companies. There's this every once in a while, you find one that's, that's kind of a good, but ultimately still going to have its, its issues, but it's certainly not going to be this uh, corresponding with what a political ruler of this world is going to say. Yeah. So in chapter three, verses five through 23, Paul is addressing the, the Corinthians' allegiances to their particular leaders. Right. And remember the letter opened up with some say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, mm -hmm. I saw Cephas, I follow Jesus. So we know we have these, these divisions in there. So Paul's like, look, and, and we know in chapter three, verse 21, they're boasting in their leaders. Uh, it says, uh, let no one boast in men for all things belong to you. They're, they're boasting in, in who their leaders are and who, who their allegiance is to. Some of them, as we go into chapter four, we're judging Paul. And Paul's like, look, uh, I don't even judge myself. You know, we'll, we'll get to that later. The third point then would be Paul's like, look, you guys are, are just silly to glamorize these leaders because they're just mere, they're humans. They're just, they're just people. And his, his point then is leaders cannot be given the same kind of allegiance that belongs to God. Mm -hmm. And while wow, we could really go off topic here for a long time. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. First point, we can't give allegiance to uh, leaders that belong to God. And secondly, we can't give leaders themselves are responsible before God for how they build. Yeah. In, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, the author makes a point where he says, um, he's basically saying like congregants submit to and obey your yeah. leaders. And this isn't talking about political leaders. It's talking about church leaders, you know, submit to and obey to them because they're watching over you. And then leaders like you're basically, you're going to have to give an account yeah. uh, before God. Well, I, uh, so do this submit well. to them because they are going to give an account to, to yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. And so would you say that that would be like a, maybe a complimentary or a complimenting passage here in terms of like, this is just a biblical ethic in terms of the, the role of yeah. uh, church leader is not something to be taken lightly. No. And I think that's a really good segue into this conversation here in first Corinthians, first Corinthians chapter three, that um, the leaders are responsible for how they build in God's congregation, in God's church. And we think, oh, I'm only responsible for preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. Like, no, there's so much more involved there. Let's look at what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter three. And this is really, this is why we started off our discussion with wisdom and the tree of life and the garden and all that good stuff. Because look what Paul does with it. He says in First Corinthians chapter three, verse five, he says, what then is Apollos? Now remember, Apollos is probably the pastor of the church. And he was a prolific speaker and, and uh, probably a skilled or trained rhetorician as, as well. And Paul says, what, is, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Verse six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. That Eden imagery, that's garden imagery. Mm -hmm. Like, well, no, Rob, that's not Eden imagery. It's just garden imagery. Well, let's just keep reading. Verse seven, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. So that's the point that we're making, right? The pastors are responsible for building 
and they're going to have to give an account to God. But look, look what Paul goes on to say, verse nine. We are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. Mm -hmm. So he starts off with garden imagery and then he changes it to, well, a building imagery. And obviously the building is the temple. Verse 10, according to God's according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder. Now I'll stop for a second. The phrase wise master builder is the phrase that was used in the book of Exodus to describe the skilled workers who are building and constructing the tabernacle. It's totally temple language. Paul says, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. So Paul's like, I, I laid the foundation. I brought the gospel as the missionary. And then Apollos is the pastor who's building on that foundation. But the analogy that he's using and the metaphor that he's using is the metaphor of, well, he starts with the garden and then he goes quickly to a temple. And he says, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how they build on it. For no one, verse 11, can lay, lay a foundation other than the one which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds, a uh, builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be shown for what it is, and that, because the day will reveal it with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Now he goes on, skipping down a few verses, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? There you go. We, we, now we know for sure mm -hmm. that we're talking about temple imagery. And he says, after all, the spirit of God dwells in you, which that's just so significant, by the way. The temple is where God dwells. That, that's, the, that's the key definition of the temple throughout the biblical text. It's where God dwells. And since you've been filled with the spirit, obviously Acts 2 and following now, we, by definition, become the temple of God. So verse 17, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. We're like, oh, this is really serious for Paul. Remember our discussion last week when we discussed divisions in the church, and we're like, you know, this is not something that we can just gloss over lightly and go, well, you know what, it's a done deal. There's just nothing we can do about it. You know, mm -hmm. we can't stop it now. Because for Paul, to bring divisions in the church and to bring destruction in the church is to destroy the temple of God. And God will destroy us for doing so. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that's significant. Now, again, go back to the uh, uh, metaphor. He starts with garden imagery in verses six and seven, chapter three. Then he moves to a building in verse nine, and then clearly to the temple in verses 16 and 17. And as I mentioned before, the, the phrase, uh, a wise master builder is from Ezekiel 35, which is describing the skilled workmen who are building the tabernacle. And then the only place where the gold, silver, precious stones are used together are actually in 1 Chronicles 29, describing the temple of Solomon. It's also in 1 Kings 5 and 1 Kings 6. So we know that Paul's talking about this garden slash temple imagery. And like, oh, they're two different things. No, the Garden of Eden was the temple because that's where God dwelled. And where God dwelled was in the middle of the garden and in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. Mm -hmm. And that takes us back to not only the biblical story can really be parsed out as which tree are you going to eat from? Now, we're supposed to eat from both of them, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we only eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil when God says to do so. Because that way we're acknowledging, okay, Lord, you are in charge. You're the one who is the source of wisdom. And you, therefore, decide what's good and bad, and, and I'm going to take wisdom from you. And so now, okay, I can eat now because you told me I can eat from that. And as a result of that, we can eat from the tree of life. Instead, we said, you know what, Lord, we, we can do this on our own. We can rule by ourselves, and we'll judge right and wrong for ourselves. 
And I think that's the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world or between wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And that is who rules. And the way the world works is they rule without God. And that's why we have the chaos and everything else that we have here. And I, I think that all fits into this, kind of this, this one story, this one package. I, I hope that makes sense to everyone. Yeah. And we're definitely going to return to the theme of temple in uh, chapter six. Uh, yeah. We're going to get to some application there. Uh, yeah, in second Corinthians six too, right? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in verse And 18, by the way, in Ephesians and by the way, in, oh, yeah, sorry. it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of everywhere. The application in chapter six, so that's gnarly, man. It gets, yeah. gosh, that's, con- there's, there's a convicting sermon. Um, so chapter three, though, verse 18, he goes on and, and Paul says, let no one deceive himself, yeah. which is, or I would, we should say themselves. Yeah. Um, this is a really strong warning. Yeah. So remember, he just says in verse 16, you are the temple of God. And in verse 17, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him or them because the temple of God's holy. Let no one deceive themselves. If anyone, this is verse 18 now, if anyone thinks they're wise in this age, they must become foolish. And again, what does he mean by that? He means they must accept the wisdom from God that is by the world's standards foolish. And so just real quick, yeah, when ahead. it says this age, why is in this age, yeah. that's, that's uh, the age of the devil, the age of the yeah. fall. Is that yeah. what we're looking at as yes. opposed to age to come, which is the rule of God, the, the okay. rule of heaven? Yeah, really good. Uh, good point there. So I've used the phrase kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, the biblical text uses um, the present age and the age to come. And so the age to come is the age of the kingdom of God. That's when God comes and brings his kingdom. And the present age is the age in which humanity from the garden is expelled and says, we will rule ourselves. Now, the problem becomes, and that's where we get all these kind of theological and eschatological divides over, is the fact that when Jesus comes, he brings the kingdom of God with him, right? In other words, he inaugurates the kingdom of God because he's the king. And that begins the kingdom of God. And we know that because the spirits breathed upon all of us in Acts 2. And the sign of the kingdom of God is the presence of God among us, mm-hmm. making us thereby temples, making us thereby holy, etc. Well, the problem for that is, is that the kingdom of God didn't come in its fullness. Because as Revelation 21 says, when it comes in its fullness, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The present age will cease to exist. So what that means then is that the present age and the age to come both exist now. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Or another way of saying it is that the kingdom of God exists and the kingdom of the world exists and they both exist now. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I think we've discussed this before, but it never hurts to kind of reiterate. We're not saying that the kingdom of God is like the spiritual kingdom and Mm -hmm. the kingdom of the world is a physical kingdom. No, no, no. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead physically. So there's a physicality to it. And that's not the way that we would divide it. The problem in the language though becomes that the age to come sounds like it's talking about something future. Mm-hmm. But when the age to come happens and it, it arrives, they don't say, you know, the age that was to come, but now is here. Mm-hmm. They don't say it. That's kind of clumsy. They can, we continue calling it the age to come, even though it's already come. And now, this is important because these are two yes. paradigms by which you have yes. to understand in order to read the New Testament story. Yes, exactly. And living out the gospel message as followers of Jesus in the midst of our world. So often you'll see some translations say, you know, Satan is the God of this world. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say world. It's God of this age. It says the God of this age. Yeah. And what happens with that is 
we have fit this paradigm of like the world is the physical world and the kingdom of God's the spiritual heavenly world. And that's the framework that we fit it into. But it says Satan's the God of this age in contrast to the age to come, which mm -hmm. has already arrived in which Jesus is the king of that age. And so that's where the dueling kingdoms comes from. And then the other point to remember then is if Satan's the God of this age, he's the ruler of the kingdoms of the world. That's why obviously at the, at the temptations, he can say, hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship mm -hmm. me because he's the God of this age. And that's the conflict. Satan's the ruler of this age and he oversees the kingdoms of the world. Mm -hmm. Christ has risen from the dead and 1 Corinthians 15 will get us here. And Christ is resurrected and ascended into heaven, given us the spirit as the sign of the kingdom of God that's present amongst us now and the spiritual, spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 are you know, present signs of this. But then it says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, and Christ will continue to rule until he brings all the other kingdoms under his feet. So he's presently overthrowing the kingdoms of the world. He just hasn't done it yet. Mm -hmm. So I hope that makes sense, everyone. That's kind of For a, me, when I teach yeah. this concept, like I actually go to Colossians 1, uh, okay, 1 yeah, 13, because yeah. I yeah. think it, it doesn't use, once you start getting the concept and you, you realize you could kind of substitute different terminology for either the present evil age or the age to come and yeah. you realize okay the present evil age oh it's like what john might call the world or, or different writers call it different things so uh, colossians 1 13 says he god has delivered us from the dominion of darkness so yeah. present evil age the world and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son yeah. you know the age to come what yeah. the kingdom of god whatever you exactly. call it and and the idea the point i make is if paul is writing to the the church in Colossae in the 60s these are people who, if you have a 30-year-old, that's someone who was born after the resurrection, Yeah. right? But they were born into the kingdom of dark, the dominion of darkness, the right. kingdom of darkness. So they were living in this kingdom post-resurrection, and there was a point in which they were transferred into the kingdom of God, meaning these are two kingdoms that are paralleling each other. They're overlapping at this time, and it's no different than it would be now in the year 2022 as it would be in the year 60 whatever 80 so anyway yeah. it's it just th this is just one of those concepts where you really have to understand it to, to to truly understand the biblical story and i think when i started understanding it that's when so much of the new testament just started making sense yeah good good excellent and the ethic of the new testament fits in right here also and we can just discuss this now and we'll get to it later uh, many many times over again as well and that is, if we're members of the kingdom of God mm -hmm. in the midst of the kingdoms of the world, and thereby we are, God dwells in us, and thereby we are temples, then we need to be holy. Mm -hmm. Because we are where God dwells. And Paul's going to say this, of course, in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, be separate, come out from them, and be holy. So I, I think Christian ethic is vital and essential here now let's go back to to kind of keep ourselves on at least on the theme of first corinthians chapter three mm -hmm. now so this is where paul then he kind of comes back and says yeah this is why you can't be doing this and as you said in verse 18 this is the strong warning let no one deceive themselves it's because look this is the standards of the world and the world standards are actually foolishness before god you need instead to become foolish which that's according to the world standards because actually we're all we're following the cross and it says, in order that you may become wise, hmm. ah, in God's eyes, not in the eyes of the world. Uh, and of course, this is somewhat similar to what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10. He says, you know, he was found his life will lose it. 
he was lost, lost his life for my sakes will find it. Or in Mark chapter eight, verse 35, and I think Mark 8, 34 through 38 is like so significant. Take up your cross and follow me. Mm -hmm. And he says, because if you want to live, you must die. Ah, exactly. Um, it's a tad ironic because if this world, if the wisdom of this world is foolishness, then it's nothing to boast about, which is what people were doing. Yeah, exactly. Right. And Paul's answer in verse 21 is stop boasting in your leaders because let no one boast in men. They were boasting in Paul or Apollos or, or uh, Peter or whoever it might be. And it's interesting. He says in verse 23, you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So what are you doing? Christ is of God. Christ serves God and Christ is the agent of God and God is the head of Christ. So if you are of Christ, then how could you be elevating a leader above you? It's like elevating a leader above God. Doesn't make any sense. And I mean, that could be a whole podcast yeah. in itself. Yeah, I think especially, we have several of them in here, right? But yeah, I mean, yeah. but how we do that, especially in, in a global society. Right. Where, I mean, you and me, we're recording this in two different states. We're in two different time zones at times. Uh, yeah. it, whereas, you know, every pastor I want to listen to, it's on demand for me. Right. And so the concept of celebrity pastor is just right. huge where we elevate people. This becomes an issue in our congregation, especially yeah. during something like a pandemic where you have church members, long, long time church members of a local congregation who are saying, but this pastor is saying, this is how yeah. churches should have been responding to a pandemic. And this guy who's very popular is saying this, and do and you have the celebrity pastor complex where now people in their own congregation are completely unwilling to entertain the, the wisdom of their own pastor because so-and-so who lives 3,000 miles away says X. And that's just the baseline of you know issues that come along with how we elevate pastors. Yeah, the and there's, pastor. there's, an, there's another problem with this, and then let's tie this into what Paul says in the next chapter, and that is when pastor puts down another pastor yes. in order to elevate themselves. Yeah, It's like, do you not understand that that person over there also is the temple of God? Mm -hmm. And if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. I think we need to think about this in, in another context. Paul's argument then in chapter four then is to say, you ought to regard us as, well, he says in verse two, in verse one, as servants of Christ. Mm -hmm. let, let, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, it's required of a steward to be trustworthy. But, you know, and then verse three, so we know that there are are a group of individuals in the church in Corinth who are causing tremendous problems for Paul. And the, the problem, we're only touching the surface of what the problems are now, by the way, it's going to be sexual immorality and all kinds of other things, but they're judging Paul. And Paul's answer is like, you know, what's a small thing that I'm examined by. This is kind of funny. Verse three, it's a small thing that I'm examined by you or by any human court. Mm -hmm. In fact, I don't even examine myself. My conscience is clean. Ultimately, this is what he's saying. Verse four, I, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I'm not by this acquitted because the one who examines me is the Lord. Hmm. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. But I'm not sure if I even care about being judged by you because you know what? I'm responsible to my master. I'm a steward uh, of, of the mysteries of God, and I'm a servant of Christ. And my conscience is clean. Now, I don't think that Paul's saying I'm perfect. That's certainly not what he's saying at no. all. Because his answer is, oh, by the way, that doesn't acquit me. Just because my conscience is clean doesn't mean I'm, I'm acquitted. But his answer is God is the judge. 
And he's the one who's assigned us to our tasks, right? You know, I planted Apollos watered, and, th- and we're all responsible for that. And Paul's answer then is, you have no right to be judging me. And again, it's by some worldly standards, by the standards of rhetoricians of the day who preach and teach in a certain way or who don't do menial tasks like leather workers and shoemakers like I are, tent makers like I am. No, I don't, we don't judge each other by those standards. It's not the way it works. Hmm. So this section concludes in uh, chapter four, verses 14 through 17, where Paul, he says he is writing to exhort them. Yeah, exactly. And look what he says in verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. I'm in chapter four, verse 14, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, look at this. I exhort you, imitate me or be imitators of me. And he says this several times in his letters. And I find this, I've preached sermons on this before. Like, okay, look guys, how many of you out there would be willing to say, be imitators of me? Later on, Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Mm-hmm. Ah, there you go. I don't think we would want to do that, right? In our world, we'll talk about um, boasting later on. But, oh, it sounds arrogant. The answer is this, we should all say it. Mm-hmm. We should all be able to say it. We don't mean by, oh, by the way, I'm following Jesus perfectly, so follow my example. We say, I'm doing the best I possibly can to follow Jesus. I'm trying every second of every day. And when I stumble, when I fall, I... I, I repent and I ask for grace and I, and I get up and I, and I try to do better. Follow me because I'm, I'm really trying to imitate Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's like, you know what? That's what we, that, that's our task. That's what our, that's what our job is. So some of the issues we've discussed in this episode, probably, you know, mm-hmm. need a bigger discussion. We've talked yeah. about that. We, I feel like we keep teasing stuff and we both want to go into longer yeah. tangents, but um, how do we want to look at some application for some of what we've talked about and what does it mean for us today? Yeah. I'm going to think out loud for you right now. And, and you can think out loud with me if you want. I don't know if you have more articulate things to say than I have here. And what I mean by that is I don't, I'm not saying I have the answers here. I look at, you know, for the last number of years, I've been in pastoral ministry and still being a student of the scriptures, still being a teacher of the scriptures, a professor of the scriptures. And I wrestle with these two worlds and I'm thinking, you know, the more I realize Jesus and this self-denying sacrificial love for the sake of the other, and then I see what we do in church, I find a disconnect. Um, if we preach Jesus crucified, let's put it this way. Would we say that the message that we preach in most of our churches on most Sundays is a message that where people go, that's foolishness. I don't think we do. I don't, I don't think we preach the foolishness of the gospel very often at all. And I think then I look at some of our debates and our discussions on music or on the style of preaching or, or the celebrity pastor stuff or the mega church stuff. And I'm not saying that they're all bad. I'm just, I'm saying, I'm thinking out loud saying, I wrestle with how does that correspond with the gospel of foolishness and the message of the cross? And 
I don't know the answer. I don't know how we could do it better. I think, I think we've gone really far off track. And as soon as I say that, people go, oh, well, you know, you can't be talking about this part of our liturgy or this part of our service. Or it's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how what we're doing now is producing and encouraging and exhorting or exalting a message of the gospel of the cross, which is foolishness, and thereby producing disciples who uh, learn to take up their cross, follow Jesus and say, come imitate me as I lay down my life for you. You lay down your life for the next person. I just think a lot of debates and things that we're having in our churches and the things that we're doing are, are missing the mark on this. It's interesting because this reminds me of something that had popped up in my Sunday school class. I'm, I'm teaching through the book of Romans right now, mm. and somehow it came up this past Sunday on how we've allowed culture to uh, form how we view Jesus and how we view the Jesus ethic and how we, um, we justify things. And so part of like what you're talking about is discipleship i think needs to involve mm -hmm. being okay with rethinking everything yes and, and I, I, always asking yes. the question of like is this actually a jesus thing or is this how a culture has interpreted jesus so like the example i gave and i and i actually have like a number of retired law enforcement people in my class and so i said in california and american law i think it's it's certainly californian law i'm assuming it's american law but in californian law i have the right to kill an intruder who breaks into my house However, when you look at the Bible, not even if you throw out uh, Levitical law, because we would say, hey, we're not under the Torah, but even when you look at like Genesis 9 and post uh, flood, what does God say to Noah mm -hmm. is the punishment for uh, what, what is deserves a capital punishment? It's when someone kills someone else because you don't kill someone made in the image of God. And so I'm even challenging, like, and this is something I'm, I'm working through. Mm, okay. If someone were to break into my house, I have the legal right to take their lives, even though they might be breaking in to steal the PlayStation or whatever, okay. but I could kill them. Right. But God says, no, you don't do that. But it's legal and, and society says, oh, well, since it's a, a just law, you can do this. But as a Christian, do we actually wrestle right. with it? And it's interesting because I had people in my class who they're trying to go to the case law and oh, I've heard this pastor say this and, and it's just trying to justify it. And maybe they're right, but no one's even willing to wrestle with the question, the mm -hmm. ethical question, like what should a Christian do? Right, right. And, and again, you, I'm not going to come out and I don't think you would either and condemn somebody that says I did that to defend my wife and children. No. And that's not okay. even the point. That's not but, even yeah, the point exactly, of it. Right. The point is, are you willing to wrestle with that to say, yes, exactly. what does Jesus that's, demand? Right, exactly. Us? exactly. That's, that's right. And what does loving this person look like right now? Yes. And what does and, loving my family in the situation look like? Yeah, exactly. And, and the right, point is, yeah. do we wrestle with those questions? Right. And, and then we go, no, because I have to defend my rights or I have to, we, we politicize it. And again, if, if we say, okay, Let's be content and asking the question about everything. Mm -hmm. All right, fine. I'm going to start with, yeah, I'm going to question Jesus and the resurrection, but I think I know where I'm going to land on that one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fine. All right. So I'm, I'm going to start there. Okay, cool. Now, where do we go from there? And, and again, we've said this before, the reason why this ministry is called Determined Truth is because I think that's our goal is to determine what the truth is. And the reality is, is that the truth is only going to point me to Jesus more because he's the truth. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where I'm going. And 
if I believe something or have a hold of something or do something that is not in accordance with the truth, that means I'm not living an ethic that's actually manifesting Jesus because I'm mm -hmm. believing something that's not in accordance with the truth and Jesus is the truth. Now, the danger there and the hard part, let's just be honest with it is, I don't always like the truth. Yeah. Because it makes me uncomfortable and it makes, and it's like, no, Jesus, you can ask somebody else to sell their possessions and give to the poor, but not, not, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I don't know. And so we don't like the answer. And so what we do is we stop and say, I can't admit that that's the correct answer. And that's shameful. It just is. Or um, you find a Christian voice yeah. that has a position yeah. that justifies what you want to believe it's confirmation bias. And yeah. so we say, well, I found a pastor who says this, or I found a commentary who, who supports what I want. Therefore I'm good. I found an out. Yeah. And you know, and maybe you're right, mm -hmm. but all we're saying is just listen. Yes. And here's the benefit of listening. Number one, the listening might help reinforce your convictions that you're right. And the other person's wrong. That's fine. It might also help you understand the other person better though. Mm -hmm. And it might help you empathize with the other person more. And, and the result of doing that is that you're going to be able to love them more. And now you can manifest Jesus more to them because you can love them more. And I think that's what it's about. It's not about all people of this religion or all people of this persuasion or all people of this race are X or Y or Z. And therefore I can hate them or not like them or disrespect them or whatever, because they're out to kill me or they're out there or they they're liberals who deny my beliefs. They're liberals mm -hmm. who want to, you know, take the gospel out of everything. Okay. Let's stop and listen and let's lovingly approach them and manifest the cross. I think it's the whole point of this whole discussion, right? Manifest cross bearing love before them because that's where true wisdom is found. Yeah. And I'll say this, I forget if, I, if I've mentioned this on this program before, but uh, one of the first times I really got rocked with something like this, I was reading Leo Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You. Mm. And so it's, it's largely an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. So I'm re I remember I was in the Azores in Portugal reading this at the time, sitting up on this mountain. It was really cool. And oh, it, he's, right. he's talking about how the, the section of, uh, you know, turning the other cheek and not repaying evil for evil. And he, I, this is years ago, I read it. So I might, I'm paraphrasing it maybe incorrectly, but it's, it's the idea that if someone was beating his family in front of them, he like, he would not retaliate. He would not do anything physically because he takes this hardcore pacifistist, okay. yeah. pacifistic view. And I remember that was the first time I ever read that, especially coming, this is before seminaries before, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, really studying other world perspectives and interpretations on, I only read American people. Right. And so I, I'm, I'm reading this, this Russian guy's perspective living in, you know, mm. a, a gnarly part of Russia. You know? mm -hmm. And this is his perspective of that. And I'm like, okay, I don't think this is right. Mm. Cause I don't think it's loving your wife and child to allow that to happen. But I've grown up in this American context where it's like, no, I have the duty of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that means I could take you out if you're doing something. Yeah, right, right. Um, it, it's actually, it's it's noble to do that something back to you. And it's like, okay, I don't, I would not go as far as him, but it definitely rocked me from my little corner that I was at and yeah, said, okay, I need, I need thinking outside your box. It was just a different voice. I still, yeah. I, I think he's wrong, but right. he, this is a Christian brother. Who's putting a, a you know, a, who am I to go against this conviction? But it's like, okay, move me on that, on that paradigm a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just, I just, the more we could read voices of other, you know, other voices. Right. Uh, I just think it's so helpful. You don't have to agree with them. You could still say, oh, right. I think they're wrong, but just to know that brothers and sisters think differently on issues. Right. And that's okay. And, you, and we can learn from them. Yeah. And, but you do have to love them. 
Yes. Yeah. And not just walk away saying, what I'm a whack job. He's a whatever, you know, yeah. you, you know, you don't name call him. It's just like, okay, even if I disagree, I could say you're right. wrong and I'm right, but you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go there. You can still love right. the guy. Yeah. Excellent. All right, cool. Well, hey, we're blazing through. We got like basically through chapter four uh, next week. Are we just going to continue on hit a, hit a few chapters or what are we going to I do? think the plan next week, we're going to jump to chapter seven and that'll still take us back in the five and six a little bit, but we'll jump on the seven and, and oh yeah, the conversations get easier because we're just going to talk about divorce and remarriage <laughs> and singleness. So that, that'll just be, that'll be an easy one. Can it'll we just put like them all in one episode? episode? Like, yeah, it'll be like a 20 minute episode. Yeah, that'd be yeah. Easy. yeah, no problem at all. Because we have it all figured out. Yeah, you know, imitate but- me. Imitate, <laughs> imitate Vinny as I imitate Rob. Yeah, yeah that's right. Not really. <laughs> All right, Rob, everyone. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good, Vinny. Actually, it would be good for you because you'd end up being a Patriot fan at the end of the That day. would be disgusting, actually. <laughs> I, Keep your mind open, Vinny. On this one, no, because Tom, <laughs> like, like we were texting in the game the other day when Tom Brady had his that that uh, that sack called on him. That was a roughing yeah. the passer, the second most egregious play in the history of his uh, yeah. you know, false call in the history of his career. Anyway. All right, everyone. Keep reading along First Corinthians with us and I uh, hope you're enjoying this and we'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.